Hi, everybody. Before we get started, can you do us a favor and head over to riseseattlepodcast.com and take a quick survey for us? Phil and I want to do our absolute best to bring you the best content that is applicable to you as a Seattleite. So uh, yeah, head over to the website, take the survey, and maybe we'll be giving some free swag away uh, to folks who take it. Thanks so much. Welcome to Rise Seattle Podcast, a podcast about Seattle, the people, their stories, and Seattle's future. Here's your hosts, Phil Greeley and Tyler Davis-Jones. Welcome to the Rise Seattle Podcast. This is the season finale of season one. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tyler. And I'm Phil. And yeah, we're excited to, to share a recap. But first, Tyler, how the heck are you? Man, I'm good. I'm ready for this rain to stop. Uh, I feel like I'm going through an existential crisis because of the gray raininess that is upon us. But that is Seattle. But despite the rain, it's like allergy season is left and right. So like, I don't, it's, rain should like cause the pollen to not fly around. But for some reason, my eyes are like feel like they have glass yeah, in them or something. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, other than allergies, how are you doing, Phil? <laughs> you have a listing that just got GeekWire Home of the Week or is voting for GeekWire Home of the Week. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So I brought on a, a modern townhouse in the East Lake neighborhood. I'm helping someone sell it. That's what Tyler and I do for our jobs. And yeah, it got, it was, well, it was Puget Sound Business Journal Home of the Week. Wow. And right now it's up for GeekWire Home of the Week as well. There is a phenomenal video you can check out, actually. It's probably on philgreeley.com. Yeah, maybe our Rice Seattle page can share that. That's actually a really good idea. So we'll share Phil's uh, video. Go check us out on uh, facebook.com slash the Rice Seattle or Instagram at the Rice Seattle. Uh, but check out that really cool video that he pieced together. I've got a video as well. I'll probably share that, but not nearly as cool because there's like actors and like, you know, drones involved in this pretty sweet video that uh, Phil put together. It was fun. You know, so the house is in East Lake, And in my mind, it's the perfect location for someone who works in South Lake Union. So we just try to capture the lifestyle of someone getting off work at Amazon, coming home, hanging out with his with his partner and having a drink on the deck. And, and it seemed to turn out pretty well. Awesome. That's great. Well, it definitely was pretty cool. So, okay, let's jump into the episode. So this is a season recap. Uh, we've taken eight of our favorite, uh, not all of our episodes are our favorite, but these are eight really great episodes that we wanted to just take snippets of uh, and share with you. So that's what we're going to do. Totally. And I think one of the one of my favorite parts of being a, a new podcast host is we get to talk to lots of interesting people. And the learning never stops, even though we're asking the well, we're asking the questions and they're teaching us and telling us about their story, their life, and whatever it is they have going on. And so we are um, honored every time someone comes on our podcast, and we're now honored to share these again with you. Absolutely. Hope you enjoy. All right, so our first clip is from Julie Lewis from episode two. In the so we're going way back to one of our first way episodes, back. and um, Julie is a 32 year survivor of HIV, and we had her on to talk about uh, her survival, um, how she's thriving currently, and the work she's doing with her organization, uh, the 3030 Project. Yeah, it was incredibly inspiring to see how she used such pain and really created something beautiful out of it. So hope you enjoy. So this clip is from working through learning about her diagnosis of HIV. So you mentioned HIV, your HIV diagnosis and surviving that for 30 years as this 
catalyst for for this project. Would you take us back to that moment in time when you found when you were diagnosed? That was 1982. Well, no, I was actually infected in 1984. Okay. So I've been uh, HIV positive for 32 years. But um, I wasn't diagnosed for six and a half years. Mm. So I was actually diagnosed in August of 1990. And at that point, my children were two, four, and six years old. And um, so for me, I think there's just one thing worse um, for sure, that I know than than getting diagnosed HIV positive, and that is having to get your own ch- children mm. uh, tested for a disease that you may have given them that they could die of. So, so for me, when I was diagnosed, and then they said you need to get all of your kids tested because two of them were born to an HIV positive mom, and you've breastfed all three of them, my kids had about a twenty five percent chance of being infected. And back in the day, um, there were no rapid tests. So basically, they went in on a Thursday and got their blood drawn. And we didn't get those test results back to the following Monday. And that was a long four days. I mean, just to sit and think, which are infected? Who's going to raise them if my husband and I both die? So when I found out that I was for sure HIV positive, they had to run two tests back in the 90s. Um, so the same day I found out that they weren't infected, I found out that I was for sure HIV positive, and it just didn't seem that bad. I mean, it was like, oh, good, we dodged a huge bullet. I'll just deal with it myself, but I'm not going to deal with sick kids. Um, Scott wasn't infected, my husband. So so for us, it wasn't nearly as bad as it could have been, right? And um, And then... I think it settled in over the next year or so what it meant to like um, have a diagnosis that you probably won't live more than you know three or four years. So and in 1990-91, we don't didn't know it near as much as we do about HIV as we do now, right? That no, was- not at all. There was a lot of fear. Um, we didn't tell hardly anyone for four years just because we didn't want our kids to have to deal with the stigma that surrounded the disease at the time. There was one medication that had just come out of trials in 1990, and that was AZT, and they hadn't been done any trials on women or children. Mm-hmm. So we were kind. I was taking a drug that was. Um, they were guessing the dosages, made me very sick, um, and at the same time, not being able to tell anyone I knew that there was anything wrong. So it was just a big, you know. Um, fake out. Every day I would be so sick and then, you know, you'd put on your happy face and go out in public and act like we're okay. And that was difficult. It's it's a very, takes a lot of energy to have a secret like that in your family. Um, so in 1994, when we um, kind of went public with the disease, it was actually a real relief. And it, and it was sort of the catalyst to me doing a lot of public speaking and I'd spent four good years thinking about it, and so I had a lot to say by that time, you know. Wow. What an inspiring story. Um, Not only did Julie enter into public speaking, but she turned around and started the 3030 Project with her son and other family members called the 3030 Project, uh, where what they do is focus on building schools in areas that, or excuse me, building hospitals in areas that are heavily... um, 
afflicted by HIV and AIDS. Um, and she's just doing an amazing job at, again, using this uh, pretty detrimental experience and turning it into something for good. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that was striking about talking with Julie is that she's like, she's seems like a regular person, right? She does not seem like a victim. Um, she's absolutely endured, you know, 30 plus years of surviving HIV, but um, she's I don't know if it's too trite to say like made the best of it, but she's just, she's taking control of, of her life and in, in the time that she has to do good for people. So we're super stoked to talk to her. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So next up, uh, we have Edward Sumner from rest R E S T that's real escape from sex trafficking. Uh, this is episode number four. The King County Prosecuting Attorney's Office wanted to understand, okay, how many how many sex buyers are we talking about? Like how many how many guys are actually doing this? So similarly, they leveraged the largest and most prolific online marketplace for commercial sex, which is Backpage.com, which you may or may not have heard of. Um, and they discovered uh, they wanted to isolate things, so they only used Backpage.com. There's probably 30 or 40 other sites where sex can be purchased, but Backpage is by far the largest. Um, and so on Backpage, on one single day, just in the city of Seattle proper, there were 8,806 unique IP addresses actively soliciting sex online in one day. Over 8,000. 8,806. It's 3.5% of the entire male population in the city of Seattle. So they have very conservatively extrapolated that number out over the rest of King County and conservatively estimate that there's approximately 25,000 sex buyers in King County. It's astonishing. I would say without a doubt, when Edward shared the sheer numbers of sex buyers that are out in Seattle and then the estimates for King County, by far and away, that was what struck me the most during our conversation. Yeah, that definitely blew me away, um, just the sheer numbers. And I think talking further, so everyone listening, go back and listen to that whole episode. It's awesome, uh, episode four. But we, you know, when he was talking about who these sex buyers are, in my head, it's like scuzzy, you know, scary people. But these are off, you know, with 8,000 people in Seattle, these many of those are our friends, mm. um, our coworkers, our bosses. They're regular people um, engaging in that activity. And for, in, in, again, in most cases, it's young women at risk that don't want to be in that position. Yeah, definitely. You know, I would, I would suggest maybe pour a glass of wine and try to get into a serious headspace before you start listening to it. Definitely don't have your kids around, but it is worth the listen just to hear what's taking place right here in Seattle. Yeah, 100%. So, uh, so shifting topics a little bit um, to something a little bit more fun is uh, our interview with Sarah Adler. This is episode number five. One of my favorite favorite recipes is your healthy margaritas yes. in, in, oh, your, me too. in your book. I mean, it's like, oh, it's four ingredients. That's it. Okay. What is it? Let's get the recipe. Uh-huh. Recipe is, um, you need one, let's see if I can do this. Uh, you need one shot of tequila. You need like a quarter glass of, um, club soda, one lime, and then a half a shot to a full shot of Contro. That's it. Done. You just do, and you know, it everything in the shape. So yeah, it's so good. What is so the good. club soda? I've never heard of that. Is so that the club soda um, just makes it a little bit more like sparkly. A lot of times what ends up happening is they'll use like a simple syrup mm. that takes up almost half of the drink. 
mm-hmm. even if it's a homemade simple syrup. Mm-hmm. So this way, doing ice in the club soda first, it actually, like, you need the balance a little bit because sure. it's such an intense right. thing. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, really yeah. good. We'll we'll make them later. Yeah, yeah. we should have these in studio right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh yeah. Okay, Tyler, be honest. How many healthy margaritas have you had since that oh. episode? Uh, no comment. <laughs> uh, they are delicious. Have you had one yet? So, totally. So the way my wife and I work is we get in this kick where we have a cocktail of the month or sometimes a cocktail of the summer. So we just buy all the ingredients in bulk and we're making them every night, right? So the healthy margarita was for us. It had its period of time in our house for sure. Oh, man. It's good stuff. Made its way on the list. And we have never to this day had them in studio, but we definitely need to fix that at some point. Gotcha. Season two coming up, maybe everyone gets a healthy margarita when they show up. That's a great idea. Yeah. Well, if you didn't uh, go back and listen to the episode, uh, I definitely fanboyed out quite a bit during that episode just because... Her book and her blogs have been so inspirational to Jen, my wife, and I. Um, and it's yeah. not just another diet, right? It's mm-hmm. it's, it's a, a lifestyle. A lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's a mentality of being um, making wise decisions with food and enjoying food, right? Not freaking out about what you can or can't eat and just relaxing with it. Yeah, and feeling good after you eat, which totally. is great. So. All righty. Okay, so our next clip is from Jeff Lilly, episode seven. Jeff Lilly is the CEO of the Union of Seattle's Union Gospel Mission. Um, they are working to um, combat the ho- homelessness problem in Seattle. And so we asked Jeff a question about what is a healthy perspective for people in Seattle. I think I use the term Seattle homeowners, and I, if I could go back, I would say everybody that's living in Seattle, works in Seattle. Um, passes through Seattle, we see the homeless problem, right? Mm -hmm. We see tents Mm -hmm. on the sidewalk in the medians, and it's growing. And um, so what should our thought process be towards those individuals? Yeah, absolutely. And right around this time, just for context, was when uh, the city was working to clear out the jungle underneath the I-5 corridor. So listen with that context. Enjoy. For individuals listening, you know, that are uh, homeowners in Seattle, just kind of your everyday person, and then also the city of Seattle, think um, politicians, I guess, policymakers. What's a healthy perspective for us to have when we're talking about moving people? Where do we put them? They're not just boxes of widgets, right? These are human beings that yep. they're, they're people. Um, but in the same, like, there's a spectrum, right? We don't want them to sleep on our own doorstep necessarily, but we want them to have a place that they can be and feel comfortable and safe. Um, how do we balance all that? And both from the politician side and then from a citizen side. Yeah. And great question. And it's the one that, that haunts us the most because we don't, the, we believe the, the sweeps are a tool the city needs to still have as an option, but we don't believe they should use it all the time. So it shouldn't be just going to move them. Hey, there's a homeless encampment. Let's make a move. But rather address some kind of systemic problems that might be going on with a particular encampment. There are lots of encampments that actually take care of themselves. They they do have porta potties. They they might be attached to a church, and they they pick up the trash. They're caring for each other. They're living in community. There's some good things about those encampments compared to the others. So I don't want to blanket this and say that all encampments are that way. However, the logic on this is that if we're really compassionate about these individuals, then we want to. Act actually solve the problem that's there. So typically what we do is we say we need, if we give the title homeless, then what we need to do is provide them a home and we've solved the problem. 
but that's actually some faulty thinking. The question is, how did you become homeless? So when you ask that question, you actually have to solve the problem that created the homelessness to begin with. Otherwise, they will fall right back into homelessness. Which seems super daunting. Exactly. So that's the goal for us. So we talk about it all the time. We say homelessness isn't so much a resource issue as it is a relationship issue. It's about us walking alongside of somebody and helping them through some difficult times. Mm -hmm. So think about your own lives. If you lost your job, you didn't have any other income, you would stretch your savings, you'd borrow money, you'd run up your credit cards, and pretty soon, if you didn't get any help, you would then be out of luck there. And then you would move into a smaller place and move into your... The question is, would you be homeless when you lost your job and you lost your money? Even if you lost your house, you wouldn't be homeless. You would find friends and family to stay with. You guys would call me and say, Jeff, where can I go? And I would put you up. And that's, and I don't mean at the shelter. I mean, I, I find you in my basement or something yeah. like that. In other words, we take care of each other. So if somebody's out on the street, what happened there? Why didn't that work? Yeah. Well, typically because that, that has either a criminal justice system, um, mental health issue or addiction issue. You've stole your mom's flat screen TV. You've been high and threatened her a couple of times. And she finally stops and says, I no longer feel safe with you in my house. Mm. And your own mom says, I can't allow you to stay here. And you've done that to your friends and you've done that to your, the rest of your family and you end up on the street. So when we talk about this, we're talking about a scenario that says, wow, there is homelessness there. But the problem isn't that they don't have a home. The problem is why they don't have a home. Mm. So when we talk about that 60-40 that we talked about earlier, 60% of the, the homeless that are going through an economic issue, there's great systems that are helping them out and moving them forward. But this 40% is more troubling. Because of that, the, there's a greater percentage of that 40% that are actually addicts, have severe criminal issues or uh, mental health issues that actually make them less safe. So when we look at it, and if that's the growing population, then the answer isn't that we have a homeless problem. The answer is we have a drug problem. Mm -hmm. We have an addiction problem. And that's showing up in all kinds of other stats. Right now, um, deaths from opiate use alone have exceeded traffic accident fatalities. Wow. And that's nationally, in the state, in the county, in the city, across the board. That, and that's just heroin. So when we're talking about, we're not talking about all the rest of the drugs. Like, for example, uh, DUI fatal um, accidents from marijuana alone have tripled hmm. in just the last two years. No surprise. We just right. legalized it. That's going to go that route. But we're, we're looking at this, this problem with our community, and we're calling it homelessness. Hmm. But our problem is actually drug, drug addiction. Yeah. And But when we look at our strategies, our city isn't actually coming on with strong strategies to address drugs. Mm -hmm. We're trying to buy more homes. Mm -hmm. So you'll see the city say, we got to raise taxes and be able to get more homes because we have homeless. And it's like, yeah, well, somebody needs to reach up ahead and shut off the spigot mm -hmm. of what's creating this problem and putting more people right. on the streets. Probably one of my favorite interviews, uh, Jeff Lilly's interview, uh, Union Gospel Mission. That was, again, episode number seven. Um, go back, listen to it, and really uh, listen to learn. Uh, I think that was that was the biggest thing that we took away was uh, a lot of people have opinions about homelessness, and potentially we don't have the right idea. Uh, for the longest time, I thought homelessness was a 
we don't have enough homes, right? We're in real estate. Like maybe we just need more inventory. Um, when in reality, it is more of a drug problem. So go back and check that episode out. Definitely eye-opening to me. And that's a man that's, yes, he's the CEO of a large organization, but he, you know, he's in the trenches, right? He's walking through the jungle to help with the individuals that are moving out. And, you know, he's, he's in the fight um, himself. And so he's very well, he's very knowledgeable about what's going on. Yep, absolutely. All right, up next, uh, we have Jill Killen. Uh, this is episode number eight. And you were flying solo on this one. I was. Yeah, it, you were uh, taking I don't know a vacation, what I was doing. Yeah, exactly. working, doing something like Drinking that. Drinking a healthy margarita. That's exactly what it was. But no, you did great. So let's take a listen. Can we talk about owning a small coffee shop in Seattle? Um, you know, when, on one hand, there seems to be an unending demand of coffee um, and food, as well as a stream of new people with disposable income, right? I'm thinking the Amazonians and Microsoft guys and Mm -hmm. the Google guys, like you got to keep and Facebook that just moved in. Um, so I'm assuming these guys, you got to keep them, uh, caffeined up, caffeinated. Uh, but on the other hand, I'm guessing that you have to sell a lot of $4 or even $1 cups of coffee, um, to be able to pay Seattle's high rent. So what does that dynamic actually look like for you? Well, it, it, it's also Seattle's high uh, pay as mm-hmm. well as an issue, um, which I'm supportive of. But um, at some point, yeah, you've got to, you know, we we try to run labor a little, a little bit short in the mornings mm-hmm. to allow us to be open later in the evening. Right, and that does help. Um, you know, as we approach fifteen dollar minimum wage, um, I see us maybe just cutting our hours. But so far. Knock on wood, we've been lucky in that as pay has gone up, um, we've the business has, has been able to sustain it, and 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 I was supportive of that measure, and I still am, um, but you know, uh, to be honest, I'm a little nervous about right. what's what's going to happen. But we're all in this together. All those businesses yeah. are going to be in the same boat together with the minimum wage. Um, rents are higher, and um, so the goal is just to to turn as many people through as possible while still providing great service. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you feel that you will have to hire less, um, or even potentially, uh, lay off some folks in order to get to that $15 range? I mean, I, we, we recently interviewed, uh, Susie Burke. Um, she's very Uh anti the $15, uh, wage. Um, and not to pit you against her or anything along those lines, but, what are some of those fears? I guess let's speak to some of those fears that you have. Um, I mean, the fear is just running a super high payroll, and mm-hmm. you know, fifteen dollars is more like nineteen dollars after you figure in taxes. And, right. Um, and you know, a lot of people say, "Well, you're the business owner; you're there day in, day out. You have other costs, and employees can come and go." But you know, minimum wage didn't keep up like it should have for a right. number of years. So it should be higher. I do believe that. It's mm-hmm. just, should it be higher this fast? I don't have an answer to that. And I think history will decide that for us. Mm. Um, but I do think it should be higher. And I um, I, I see my employees struggling to pay their rents right. and finding a place to live and being able to stay in the city and having to have eight roommates in one house. And um, it's it's really hard out there mm-hmm. for them, and you want baristas to be professional. You want this to be a profession for them. There's a lot of training that goes into mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. and so you got to pay for that. Yeah. And I, I I do support that concept, 
but I get the fear, especially for businesses that run on a super tight margin. Um, I don't foresee us laying people off. I just foresee us maybe shortening our hours, if anything. Yeah. Yeah. That's probably be the first place I'd go. Mm -hmm. Raising rates a little bit, shortening our hours. I don't see us ever doing a service charge. I'm not mm -hmm. a big fan of that as a customer. Right. So... As in, as in a tip charge, is that what you're saying? Or just a, an automatic service automatic charge. charge. Okay, yeah. I see. Um, yeah. We'll probably just raise our prices, shorten our hours, and then kind of see what everybody else does. I mean, gotcha. I think all of us businesses will maybe move in the same direction together so mm -hmm. that customers experience the same thing at every cafe and at every restaurant. Whereas now you go to Rene Erickson's places and there's a 20% charge automatically. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. Um, um She's, you know, the one-off shops, I think, have it a little bit harder because they're braving it first. Right. And I'm honestly waiting and seeing what happens. I, yeah. I always just try to stay ahead of the curve. Like, whatever minimum wage is going to be, I pay people more than that mm -hmm. before that happens. Yeah. So that they know they're valued. So that was me by myself with Jill Killen, episode number eight. Um, I really enjoyed that because she gave an honest perspective of what it looks like to be a small business owner, but also someone who supports things like $15 an hour. Um, you know, these, these policies that, that are having a, a pretty profound impact on her business where she does have to shift in some capacity, but she still supports it. Uh, so definitely a really great listen. Um, and we always hear about $15 an hour, the minimum wage fight in the news, but it's great to hear from someone that's actually dealing with it and and supporting it at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. And definitely go to her uh, coffee shops. Uh, there's Royal Drummer in Ballard. Uh, there is um, Maple Leaf. Um, Cloud City. Cloud City Coffee. Thank you, Phil. Uh, and then there's also El Diablo up on Queen Anne. Totally. Okay, so our next clip is from... Okay, Tyler, you got to help me out. What episode is this? So this is uh, episode number nine. Episode nine with Marguerite, Marguerite Jaguer. And uh, she is a real estate agent with Windermere Professional Partners down in Tacoma. And the topic uh, for that episode was about this concept of people that can no longer afford Seattle are opting out of Seattle and moving to Tacoma. Her website is movetotacoma.com. And so we talk about just that. Are people really moving to Tacoma? So as we talk about Seattle on this podcast, and we understand, we explore this idea that in the last five years, Seattle's boomed and mm. even become maybe more unaffordable in, yeah. a lot of, in a lot of aspects. So as a real estate agent, is there a percentage or a way you can quantify of the number of clients that you have, how many are literally opting out of Seattle for your your town? Right. And people kind of go in stages. So there's this initial stage of like inquiry, like I want to do this. And so I have like a bunch of like videos and like podcasts and blog posts that I share with them to kind of give them an idea of what to do and where to go and to investigate. Because it's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I'd say like people who've actually like moved from Seattle and closed this year with me or someone I referred them to, I mean, at least 30 people. Wow. And, you know, I'm like a normal... I'm like a normal agent, like I don't have a big team or anything. So to mm. me, that seems very significant. You know, to be honest, when I first launched the the website and like Cairo came and we're like, is this a thing? I was like, yeah, it's totally a thing. <laughs> and they were like, well, it might just be you. I was like, definitely not just me. It's a thing. But inside I was like, maybe it's just me. I'm not sure. <laughs> I now know for it's a, a trend. fact. It's an it actual is, thing. Yeah. I mean, every yeah. realtor in our city knows it's true because everything has changed. You know, in Tacoma, we were the land of like VA loans mm -hmm. and FHA loans where people were going zero down or three and a half percent down. And that 
that's how our locals go. You know, I mean, not that nobody in Tacoma can go conventional and put 20% right. down, but for the most part, it's like a working class city. Our median income is like $58,000 a year. So most people aren't paying cash for houses. Well, now what I have is like a guy that called me from LA and was like, yep, we just uh, got an offer. We're selling our house for $1.7 million, and we want to buy something for six and then buy three investment properties in Tacoma and retire. Like people cashing out of California and moving to Tacoma. Now, when they cash out of California and move to Seattle, they're like getting more square footage. Mm. In Tacoma, like you're just done working, right? Right. <laughs> and so like, and it was really interesting to go out to lunch with him and his wife a few months later and say like, how's it going? <laughs> like, yeah. do you like it here? And that's always... And do they? Yeah, they did. Thank the yeah. gods, right? Yeah, like, yeah, they right. really liked it. That's good. But, but I think that's the other thing is like, I think there's a temptation as a realtor to like really wrap your city in a bow and just tell the nice things about it. Mm-hmm. And I think if you really, if you're going to move cities, you have to be, really take responsibility for finding out what it's really all about. Okay, Tyler. So we both help people buy and sell real estate in our day jobs. Uh, do. What's your experience with people moving to Tacoma. Do you have clients that have done it? I, I do actually. Yeah. So last year, uh, had some clients who were either looking in Soto, they kind of worked in the Renton and Federal Way area, uh, loved living in Seattle, had a really robust community here, uh, but also didn't want to necessarily commute from may, maybe Green Lake all the way down to Renton. That right. didn't make very much sense. And they definitely didn't want to live on the east side. Um, and so it was kind of between Soto or Tacoma. So we looked at houses in both places, and finally they found they spent the exact same amount that they would spend in Soto for a complete fixer that was tiny um, to getting a home in Old Town uh, with a view of Puget Sound, and it's just like this beautiful mid-century home. So absolutely 100%, uh, there are people who are looking at the unaffordability of Seattle and uh, looking towards Tacoma. And I think especially it's that younger... I mean, it, I would say for everyone, things have gotten more expensive, right? But when you're trying to get your first home um, or move up, right? Like oftentimes the answer for that that goal is to move out of the city. Um, and so Tacoma is probably the next biggest metropolitan urban mm. center where you can get some of the fun culture that you get in a city. And so it was super interesting to hear Marguerite put more facts to what we already feel. Yeah, absolutely. And she also has a podcast. It's called Move to Tacoma. Uh, and then you can check out her website, move to Tacoma.com. So. Absolutely. All right. Up next, Nate Bowling. This is episode number 11. Uh, Nate was actually referred to us via Marguerite. He is the Washington. Thank you, Marguerite. Thank you, Marguerite. Uh, he's the Washington State Teacher of the Year, and he is full of information. You might want to uh, put set your uh, podcast to where it slows the audio down a little bit because he's an, he's an incredibly fast talker and he's got so much robust, really great information uh, to share with you. So enjoy. Let's talk Washington State school funding. Yeah. Let's break that. So for our listeners, uh, they want to be educated. Uh, they want to understand um, what, are the, what are the issues we're facing here in sure. Seattle. Um, you know, that's, that's our target demographic of folks who are listening. Um, so how do property evaluations take into account how quality schools get funding or, or, or just schools in general get funding? Um, yeah, break that down. For and us. then also maybe too, like in the past, for the past 10 years or so, education has been underfunded yep. yes. and there's a movement to like what Tyler's talking yeah. about yep. to incorporate all this sure. new funding for... Well, I, I think we have to start with the core issue that kids who are in poverty cost more to educate. 
And they cost more to educate because kids who are in poverty have uh, higher percentage of students who are English language learners, higher percentage of students who are special education, and higher percentage of students that have like mental health needs. And also oftentimes there's like, there's, there's less predictability in their life, so you need more wraparound services. The issue we have though is, is that the funding allocation for schools in Washington state, everybody from this state gets the same amount per student. So according to the state of Washington, a kid in the nicest neighborhood in Medina costs the same amount to educate as a kid in like the worst part of Seattle or worst part of Tacoma. And so then that's like the basic funding formula. And then what happens is, is that local municipalities for their districts have levies, and these levies are property tax levies that they can use to raise additional money. So Washington's constitution says that the funding of schools in Washington state is the paramount duty of the state of Washington. Uh, and that's like the funding of basic education. Uh, the state does not give enough money, full stop, to districts to do basic education. So what's happened is, is that local municipalities have taxed themselves via levies to fund their schools. And so what you get is, is that people that have higher property values have the ability to raise more money. And they have, and use that, they use that money for better facilities, higher teacher salaries, better, 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 better. Right. Communities that have less money have less capacity to raise mo that money, and so they're more dependent on the state allocation, which for them is the same as the wealthier district. Okay. So the way this breaks down is, is that teachers in Snohomish County and the east side of King County are the best paid teachers in the state. And they've earned every dollar they make. In central Washington, particularly, and in also places along South Seattle, who like where aren't Seattle proper, but like Highline and Tukwila, you have really high need populations, but they can't pass levies. And one of the reasons why, the, why they struggle with levies is, is that the majority of their kids in their schools are brown, and the majority of the parents and homeowners aren't. And that's just a, a really kind of sad reality. So are those white kids going to private school in those? Well, in, in some cases, yes. But in other cases, like just the neighborhoods have changed, right? Gotcha. Like if you drove through Tukwila or like the area around SeaTac Airport 30 years ago, right? Like it didn't look like it looks now. There wasn't the high population of East African students. And so what's happened is, as those neighborhoods have browned, the white families who are there are older and have fewer kids in school, gotcha. right? And so the kids who are in the school are largely renting or living in apartments, and the homeowners aren't voting to tax themselves to educate somebody else's, air quotes, somebody else's kids. Right. All right, Phil, you have kids who are closer to going into school, plus you have this sweet new website called seattleschoolguide.com. Uh, what did you think of Nate's podcast and how does this affect you? I think the one of my big takeaways from from that clip and just our whole conversation with Nate is that we if we live in a city and we live in a community, we can't expect to have good schools if we're not invested in making them good schools. And so part of that starts at home with being involved with the process of our kids' education. But another big portion of that is money, right? Mm. And, you know, this new proposal for the for funding education in Washington State, for us as real estate agents, um, it's going to increase our B&O tax, right? Like that will be a thing uh, that's on the table for uh, financial services professionals to pay more in tax in order to fund education. And so it'd be really easy for me to say, I don't like to pay more tax. I don't want to do that. But I can... I think, especially after talking to Nate, I can see how when you invest in education, you're investing in kids' future, regardless of if they're yours or not, and if they live in your city or not. Mm -hmm. And um, When you're investing in, in the future of Washington State, really. Absolutely. Yeah. And it'll make, um, it, it will raise the bar for everybody and, and um, provide more opportunities for, for all students, but especially students at risk. 
Great. So. Excellent. All right. Well, so uh, our last highlight that we have, actually, before I go to that, uh, Nate Bowling has a podcast that is coming out. Yes. It's called the Nerd Farmer Podcast. Nerd Farmer Podcast. Check out natebowling.com. I think he has some updates there. Uh, but this guy is, again, a wealth of information. If you want to learn more about the education system, about the pedagogy that is used in Washington State, um, about what it looks like for... Um, uh, for lower income communities to get the the same or better education than than they're currently getting, um, then head over to natebowling.com and check out Nerd Farmer. Uh, and he's the, the 2016 Washington State Teacher of the Year. So there's a, a new current State Teacher of the Year, but he has because of that platform, he has the ear of policymakers, decision makers, and um, and he's going to bring the heat for sure on the podcast. Yeah, so check absolutely. it out. Yeah. All right. Up next, uh, Mike McGinn, former mayor, Mike McGinn, Seattle mayor. Uh, that was 2010 to 2013 was when he was mayor. We had a blast on this uh, in this conversation. He, again, just incredibly intelligent guy, knows all of the intricacies of what Seattle is dealing with. And I really enjoyed um, having this conversation with him. The and specific thing we talk about is something that's near and dear to you, Phil. Absolutely. So the Seattle Sonics um, left in 2008, and I don't know if I've ever gotten over it. And so there is a movement afoot to build a new arena to attract a new NBA team and to bring the Sonics back, but it is stuck in political red tape left and right. And so currently there are two main proposals, renovate Key Arena, or build a whole new arena down in the Soto area. And uh, the current mayor supports the key arena plan, uh, despite a billionaire wanting to build in Soto. And so we asked McGinn about all of that and just to get his take, because he was a supporter of the Soto plan and Chris Hansen, who's, who's working to bring the Sonics back. So let's hear what Mayor McGinn has to say about the Sonics arena. All right, episode 12. This is this is an important one for me personally. Sure. When will I be able to watch oh, man. a Seattle Supersonics game here in Seattle? Will it be at Key Arena? Will it be in Soto? Or will it be in Soto? Yeah. And um, maybe digging into the Key Arena thing a bit, Why? what's the current obsession from the city about the Key Arena site? You know, I... I just knew from the instant you said this is really personal to me. I knew it was going to be a Sonics question. <laughs> like, there's like a body language that comes up at that point. Well, um, you, you were my advocate, and uh, and now I don't yeah, know. I'm yeah. not sure what's going on. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, you know, there there are a lot of different moving parts that have to be in place, and and you know, it's clear that Ed Murray, my successor, um, abandoned the Soto site. You know, said it wasn't his priority. He inherited it, put absolutely no political muscle into making it go through. And I think there's an open question about as to whether, you know, he's opposed to it, just adamantly opposed to it. It seems that way. But it feels that way. Yeah, it does. Because, um, you know, it, it, that street vacation just needed one more vote. Um, and now we see, you know, Chris Hansen's come back. Who's a Seattle guy, by the way? And I think we had some problems with out-of-town owners last time. And we got right. a Seattle guy who wants to invest in a team and has now said, you don't even have to loan me money anymore. I'll, you know, the economy's improved. I, you know, I can borrow enough now to do it myself. I don't need any, uh, I don't need help from the city and the county on, on the money borrowing, which he would have paid back too. Unbelievable deal. Like best deal any city has ever gotten for an arena 
anywhere, you know, in, in that regard. So having had that vote from the city council to deny the street vacation, really going back on the deal that was made with Chris Hansen, because they didn't say they, they thought that street should needed to be kept for the city. They said the arena shouldn't be down in the port area. That puts the arena, you know, the, the Hansen group in a tough place. Um, so now we see the key arena one coming forward. Um, and, you know, these aren't, there's not an ownership um, group yet saying we're going to be working with the people that want to renovate the arena to put something there. And obviously key arena, you know, we got the Soto arena got so close to the finish line and now key arenas, you know, really right at the starting line and you got traffic issues and neighbors and, you know, all of the other reasons why, you know, all of the things you have to go through right. to build something in this city. You know, we're just at the starting line. And the the companies that are coming forward to potentially bid, you know, they're really interested in creating a concert venue that could support an NBA team, but they're not they're not ownership groups themselves. So I don't have an answer to your question, but you know, we're not I don't think we're in a place right now where the NBA is like Hey, awesome! Seattle's knocking on the door. When you have because there is a there's a possibility of expansion, although we don't really know what that is. But there is a possibility of expansion out there. Well, it seems like if if the Soto if the street vacation had been approved and we were you know I don't know if the term shovel ready is appropriate, right. but I'll use it. If we were no, shovel it, it ready, the been. NBA might. I mean, if there was an inkling of hope, we would um, be able to execute on that. But well, Chris Hansen would have been in a position to go to the NBA and say, if you grant me a team, I have all of the permits I need to build right mm. now. So that, whether or not he could have gotten a team, as we know, is a separate question. So that would have been further along than we are now. And so we don't know yet whether we're going to have all of those pieces in place at the key arena site. So my last follow-up question, then I'll, I'll let it yeah. go for now. When you have a billionaire offering... <laughs> to to develop your city. Yeah, yeah. And I know it's not for free, right? There are costs that the city will bear on some level of even just bad traffic for a while or the port, right, is is right next yeah. to the to the potential Soto site. It's got to be um is it it's just is it purely politics that a mayor would say, "Eh, no thank you." Yes. And so he thinks that his, the people voting for him for re-election are more in favor of, or are less in favor of having a Soto Arena. You know, the, the Maritime Unions and the Port, you know, put on a full court press. And Ed, you know, picked his side, right. obviously. So when you ask, is it purely politics? Um, I hate to say it, but too often in government, you know, money follows power, not, it doesn't follow rationality. Mm. The tunnel. Money followed power there. You know, there's a lot of interest that wanted that tunnel. And, you know, any type of analysis about, hey, what's the best way to spend a few billion dollars to improve traffic, improve the economy, um, live up to our climate ideals? Man, we could have done so much with three, mm. $3 billion another way to really get towards our goals. Yeah. But but money follows power lots, you know, when, when things get hot. And when the when the... Amounts are big. Yeah, it becomes even more irrational. Well, to be honest, you know it, that if you if you continue to listen to the rest of that that uh, 
podcast and I answer, I, I basically say, well, he's not giving me much hope, right? And what's going to happen here? Because it seems like um, the the Seattle current mayor is trying to advance a plan that has, is a dead end. And um, so, and we're just left with nothing, no team and no hopes of, of when one might come. So I was uh, thankful for his answer that he answered it, but bummed at, at the specifics of it. So we are... Um, we're continually crossing our fingers for, for an NBA team. Yeah, and if, if you are interested uh, learning more about bringing the Sonics back to Seattle, uh, how can you get involved? Apparently on April 17th, there is a Sonic Boom Day. Uh, people from around the city will be sharing their voice with city council on the same day uh, so that uh, Seattle residents can ultimately voice their opinion and their hope for bringing... Uh, the Sonics back. Totally. Um, so check that out. Also, uh, Seattle Growth Podcast. So our friend Jeff Shulman, he's a professor over at University of Washington uh, at the the School of Business over there. Uh, Jeff runs a podcast called Seattle Growth that has a very uh, similar vision and mission um, as our podcast. Uh, Jeff has has the weight of University of Washington um, behind his back. So he just spoke to Chris Hansen. Uh, that's a new episode that's coming up. And then we were interviewed on Seattle Growth as well. Um, and uh, we're just talking about Seattle Sonics and what it, what's what's the impact that the Sonics are going to have on the city of Seattle. Totally. And to continue the tangled web of podcast hosts, Jeff was on episode 14 of our show. Um, so that's another one you can take a listen to if you haven't yet. All right, Tyler. So we've had four, we're, we're at 15 episodes of, of Rise Seattle uh, podcast. What's like your biggest takeaway from going down this journey of starting a podcast about Seattle? Uh, that's a really great question. I, I think honestly, my biggest takeaway is that we are all connected, uh, regardless of ideology, religion, uh, philosophy on life, um, whatever your belief is, we're, we're connected in this uh, beautiful city that we call Seattle. And uh, we're in it together. And I think if, if we can listen to each other and continue to, um, to, to really give each other the space to share each other's stories, we're going to be much better off down the line. Um, another key takeaway is, you know, never in my life would I have think, thought Tyler, this kid from Nashville, Tennessee, who moved to Seattle, would one day be sitting down and interviewing uh, the former mayor of Seattle. Um, or the CEO of Union Gospel Mission, or uh, the CEO of you know major corporations like Mir, or um, you know simply Real Health. Uh, so it's just a really beautiful way to meet people who are doing awesome things. Totally, yeah. I think ultimately we love Seattle, we love our home, and we bring people on that love our city as well. But everyone does it in a different way, right? Mm-hmm. And everyone contributes in a different way. Everyone has a different story to tell. And ultimately, that's been the funnest thing for me is to hear those stories that I might not have known about before, um, but then we get to share those and put them on our platform and, and help other people learn about them too. Yeah, absolutely. So this this is the conclusion to season one. Uh, I cannot believe we have done a season. There are 15 episodes that are out in the world, and we're excited about season two. Um, we've got some great uh, guests lined up. And uh, we want to hear specifically what you think 
of the show. Um, we will be putting out on our Facebook page a survey. Um, what did you like? What did you not like? Who should we interview? Uh, please go to facebook.com slash the rise Seattle um, and take that survey and tell us, you know, specifically what is it that you want to see us do in season two? Uh, likewise, you know, we're both real estate agents. Uh, we're, we're kind of wondering whether or not we should talk about that type of stuff. Like, uh, cause we don't want to sound salesy. We really want uh, to provide good quality content about um, our city. And so um, let us know if that's something you're interested in hearing about. We'd be happy to, to kind of talk a little bit about the market um, and what Seattle's doing as far as the rise goes. We want to be a podcast by the people and for the people. And Absolutely. So as much as you share with us, we would love to um, reciprocate and provide that for you. And so we are completely honored that you're listening and that you're on this journey with us. And thank you so much. Yeah. And last but not least, if you, uh, if you listen to this podcast, will you please share it with one of your friends, somebody who you think is interested in uh, the issues that Seattle has? Maybe it's somebody who's moving to Seattle that you know about. Uh, share it, uh, share it on Facebook, share it, you know, just take their phone and subscribe uh, because that really helps us out. It helps us get the word out about what we're trying to accomplish. Um, so please, yeah, if you can, that'd be, that'd be fantastic. All right. We'll see you in season two. Season two. Thanks. Rise Seattle is produced and recorded by the very talented Brett Baird. A special thanks to Bravery Music for our intro and outro music. You can contact us and find all of the show notes and episodes on our website, Rise Seattle Podcast. You can also connect with us on social, Instagram and Twitter at the Rise Seattle, and use hashtag Rise Seattle to be part of the conversation. Please subscribe to our podcast and write us a very nice five-star review on iTunes. We would be grateful. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you in two weeks for our next episode.